The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and, of course, past performance does not guarantee future returns. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. Coming Home is proudly supported by Kiwi Bank, the bank that's making Kiwi better off. If you've recently returned to Aotearoa and are looking for opportunities in life and business, a new start or a safe place to re-establish roots, Kiwi Bank is here for you. Find out more at kiwibank.co.nz. My name is Duncan Grieve and I'm the managing editor and founder of The Spin-Off. And in June of this year, I wrote a story about a phenomenon that I'd watched unfolding over the previous few months. COVID-19's prompted thousands of migratory Kiwis to return. However, beyond the raw numbers, little is known about who exactly is coming back and how long they're staying for. I'm home home. This is what home looks like. We're seeing quite a few New Zealanders coming back who are coming out of those big city economies with a bunch of skills that we haven't seen too much of in the past. This can be a really exciting fresh start. I started noticing in in sort of May, June that these really high profile New Zealanders across multiple different industries whose careers I'd followed from afar were starting to sort of pop up in New Zealand and increasingly some of them were coming back to live, to work, to start new businesses and it just got me thinking that if there are enough of them this could be a quite interesting story and potentially like a good news story and what has been otherwise an incredibly bleak year. I decided that I wanted to explore the themes, the opportunities, the peril of it over the course of a podcast. And to do that, I couldn't think of anyone better to have alongside me than Jane Yee. Duncan and I have known each other for a really, really long time. And just in the last five years, we've been hosting podcasts together. We do like to chat. And the reason why this topic is so personal to me is that I actually was living in L.A., up until March this year. I hadn't been there very long, planned to stay on a lot longer. I was there with my husband who was working as a director in advertising over there and we'd gone just to kind of, I guess, seek out the dream and see what, you know, what opportunities might be available to us over there. And then COVID hit and we came crashing back to New Zealand, which is where we are staying for now. So together we'll be talking to other New Zealanders who've had a similar experience to Jane and trying to figure out what's next for them in New Zealand. Obviously there are some people who are returning home who had planned to come back one day and this just sped up the process a bit. But there's also people who arguably never planned to come back at all. But New Zealand seems to be the good place to be right now. I imagine that demographers will be studying this for the rest of their careers. 
It's got to be the single biggest moment in our migration history. Yes, it is, Duncan, but I don't think you've gone far enough. That's Paul Spoonley. I'm a, a distinguished professor at Massey University. He just wrote a book, right? Yeah, it's called The New New Zealand, which ironically went to the publishers just prior to the pandemic. He's revised the book, though, so you've got no excuse for it to still read it. But he's the expert when it comes to this stuff, and he reckons this is a total game-changer for New Zealand. What's happening now is much more than just a simple reset. It is a complete throwing out of all the rules of engagement and the way in which we've understood mobility and migration over the last 30 or 40 years, and we've moved to a very, very different place. And it's not clear what that place looks like at the moment, but I'm clear that it's a very disruptive shift in terms of our demography. Before we get into that, I think it's really important that we understand where we came from, like what the baselines of what our immigration has been over the past couple of decades, because this has been something we have talked about as a country almost nonstop, fretting about how much immigration we've got, who's coming in, what we're missing, who's leaving and why. Jokes at each other, including how many New Zealanders are now resident across the Tasman. Companies are being urged to prepare for a labour squeeze due to the country's ageing workforce, skill shortage and continual brain drain. We'll get to the numbers later, but I think it's really important to understand what the brain drain means on a human level for the people who've been part of it. So who were the brains that were being drained? Who am I? Um, Tolofalava, my name's Julia Arnott-Ne'ene. I am 27 years old and I have recently returned home from San Diego in California where I was working for HP as their global social strategy lead. Honestly, one of the best interviews of my life and someone we'll be hearing from throughout the series. I can't believe that she's a global strategy lead at age 27. That blows my mind. At age 27, I was still getting like regrettable tattoos. Uh, so she's just returned from the States, which means she left New Zealand at some point. But what made her leave in the first place? So Julia's story starts in her early 20s. She's just popped out of university, the whole world wide open to her. And she's just trying to figure out what comes next. Holy snap, like, what am I going to do? Like, where am I going to go? Like, I've got to prove something to my mum. got a plan, mum, i got a plan. Did not have a plan. But ironically, her lack of a plan led her into a job as a strategic planner. And that was really cool. And, you know, you got paid to think and paid to like, learn about people. Julia was upskilling at a rate of and was getting thirsty for more. Because when you become a bigger fish, right, the pond can feel a bit small. So maybe time to look for a bigger pond. And as Paul Spoonley puts it. If you're living in Sydney or Melbourne or London, you're talking about a labour market which is many times larger than the New Zealand total population. And therefore the opportunities, the, the cultural life as well as the job that you're doing you've just simply got more options there. Like so many New Zealanders in their youth, Julia wanted to broaden her horizons, live somewhere else for a while and just see what the world had in store for her. I went to Sydney where I moved over and went into market research and I started to be in market research in healthcare and biotech and I really started to get curious about the tech industry but I never ever thought I was one smart enough or two legit enough. Like I sort of always had it in my mind that you had to have this very perfect resume and this perfect track record of A pluses. Classic imposter syndrome. But Julie also had this mischievous side that meant she just thought she'd give it a shot. 
I thought, why not try it? So I was around 23, 23, 24. But I was really just putting out, like casting the net wide. Unless I put my hand out, how is anyone going to even find me? So it was like a big Sunday session for me. I just sat on my computer. So I looked up strategy and I put in the industry and I went technology and I went like locations and I just went worldwide. I was like, yes, Shanghai, I'll make this work. Apply. Oh, San Francisco, sweet. Yeah, I'll figure it out. Apply. London sounds good. Hong Kong, that's also big, isn't it? New York, that's pretty big, I heard as well. And then I went back to work the next day and just sort of didn't think anything of it. And then I heard from this recruiter in Romania from HP. Oh, shit, what have I done? I don't know what's happening. Oh, my God, Juliet, what did you do? Oh, so this is the role for strategic planner of United Kingdom and Ireland, based out of London. Oh, yep. I was this random kid out of New Zealand, 24 years old, living in Sydney, applying for a role across the other end of the earth. I still think that someone's playing this crazy joke on me, but I had five interviews, it took eight weeks, and then I got the job, and two weeks later I left for London. I still look at that moment in my life and I'm like, how, how did this happen? Like, what, what were people smoking in California when they said yes to this kid? I do not know, but I rolled with it. Julia's story of trying to find the limits of your talent is one that's familiar to so many New Zealanders who've headed off overseas, looking for something that just doesn't exist in New Zealand a lot of the time. It's crazy that if you're a founder here, you've got like two VCs to go to. Like, what the hell? This is Marnie Turnbull. She is, well, she's a force of nature for one. Being in the studio with her was incredible. She has such an amazing energy. Uh, But she's in the world of fintech. She's really interested in blockchain, all that jazz absolutely love being at like the frontier of what's coming really rethinking whole models of yeah new economic paradigms I would say and like Julia she's been in the US for the last little while just casually being a genius at the forefront of her field I was on a really good visa actually the exceptional talent 01 she was initially drawn overseas by an obsession with China so I went to China to study Mandarin and that exposed me hugely to what is possible in faster moving markets. Then I was like, okay, what about Europe? So I went to Spain, too slow really. But <laughs> it was good because I then dived hardcore into the kind of hackathon and startup builder community. Came back to finish my law degree actually and dissertation focused on the future of privacy law in New Zealand. And then It was at that point that I was like, wow, I'm just so into tech and what could be possible with, you know, exploring beyond New Zealand and got the opportunity to start with NZTE in LA. That's New Zealand Trade and Enterprise. Yeah, boom, to LA. I'd never even been to the US, actually. So that was kind of wild. I was pretty naive on that front, actually, about what it would entail. Yeah, from there, found more of my pace and community more was San Francisco than LA. I would say it was like it was a weird kind of feeling of coming home actually. As soon as I got there, it was like, whoa, these are my people and this feels good. Duncan, do you think these people don't feel at home in New Zealand because their ambition outweighs the opportunities that are here for them? It's hard to know whether they actually don't have the opportunity or they don't necessarily feel like they can access it. I think it's really common in your teens and your 20s 
to feel like there's something burning inside you that has to get out, but you don't know exactly how to do it. And I think for New Zealanders, coming from a small country that's a long way from anywhere, there's something about proving yourself on a world stage that's really important, really validating. Yeah, most of us just go and pull pints in an English pub though, right? These people are spreading their wings and taking over the world. Once you get that taster, once you get that exposure, you're like, holy shit, you know, I can't not go out and dive into that pool, um, opportunity pool. And that was the case for Julia, right? I think that's exactly right. So I put that question to her pretty bluntly. What pushed you away from New Zealand initially? Like, like there must have been something that you were looking for that you didn't feel like you mm. could find in these shores. I sometimes, no, I, I, let's own this. I do feel that I have to constantly justify my existence. And I'm constantly walking into rooms where I have to almost demonstrate my receipts, demonstrate my experience and the validity of me entering rooms. And that gets really exhausting, really, really exhausting. And you feel, I feel, I should say not everyone else does, I feel the barriers to entry here are much higher to exist and to break glass ceilings. And for me, that's where I, I definitely didn't feel as welcomed and I definitely found it much harder to, to feel like I could move up back at home because I didn't have all of the perfect um, tick boxing, um, I guess you could say, like requirements of how to get ahead here. I think for New Zealanders, when they're in New Zealand, they feel like there's a particular track you have to get on and you have to hit each mark along the way. Whereas when you go overseas... You don't carry any of that baggage. You don't really know what the process is. You can just kind of throw yourself at the world and, and see what they make of you. And definitely I found being in the States that you're encouraged to be ambitious. You're really encouraged to kind of like talk yourself up. And it's so often about how you are in the room and your rapport with people and your selling of yourself as much as any experience that you might have. Like people can just feel like you'd be a good fit here. It's interesting. I often think of these big moves as a really big deal that people spend loads of time thinking about, probably because that's what I would do. But sometimes it's just a matter of one thing leading to another, I guess. I basically left just because I just wanted to go somewhere that would be so completely foreign to me. I was not leaving with the intention to go on a long trip or live abroad or never come back. This is Rachel Morris. She's actually talking to us over Zoom because she's in a hotel in Auckland. She's in quarantine. But she's also a bit of a hotshot. I was the editor of a publication called HuffPost Highline and that was the digital magazine of HuffPost. So I've been following Rachel for years. She was one of those New Zealanders within journalism, you know, my field, who whose name was in lights. And honestly, I was just sort of in awe of her and never imagined that she'd ever return home. I was based in Washington, D.C. for about five years, but living in the United States for nearly 17 years before that. The whole thing started where I was going to go backpacking for like, you know, a couple of months with a friend in Vietnam and wound up getting a job at an English language newspaper. And that was the first time I'd ever done any journalism. I really loved that and then stayed there for more than a year. 
And one of my colleagues had been to the journalism school at Columbia in New York and suggested I apply, which I did, and wound up, you know, going to New York for that. So it was basically this two or three month backpacking trip. I actually, I never really lived in New Zealand again after that. That just kind of kept leading to other things. You never did an OE, did you? No, I had a child when I was incredibly young instead. Uh, would you have otherwise, do you think? Oh yeah, absolutely. See, I never did an OE either and I never really wanted to. I felt like, you know, I was happy in New Zealand and I was happy to travel, but I never wanted to like live abroad or try and make a living abroad. And yeah, it's weird because just today I've been really, really missing LA. And I would never have imagined that for myself at the ripe old age of 41 years old, that I'd kind of be yearning to have that overseas experience. I'm not going to leave, though, don't worry. (laughs) Glad to hear it. So LA was really interesting for us because it's such a transient place. Like, everyone in LA is not from LA. So you do kind of, like, managed to fit in a lot quicker because no one has their kind of extended family around or their friendship network and so you're forced into this position and and it's a good place to be where you can make friends quite easily everyone's from somewhere else and actually there are loads of Kiwis in LA and there was one family who had moved over there not too long before us and we were planning to catch up with them over there but it never actually happened because of COVID and we did actually manage to catch up back here though Hello, my name is Polly Fry and I am a post-production executive in non-fiction at Netflix based in the Netflix content headquarters on Sunset Boulevard in Hollywood, Los Angeles. But right now you're sitting at my (laughs) dining table having a cup of tea in Auckland, New Zealand. I'm a bit like the Netflix Auckland office of one, basically. (laughs) While we were in the States and all lovingly doing our role at Netflix. When COVID hit and the office was shut down, we were working remotely from our house in Studio City, which was all well and dandy, but 14 weeks was a bit much. And so then we came back here to New Zealand and Netflix kindly allowed me to work from home here. So basically what I do... So you might notice that even though Polly's a New Zealander, her accent is kind of hard to place. I'm originally from the UK and I still have family in the UK. But today she absolutely considers herself a Kiwi. Yes, I've been um, 12 years here and I really do consider myself a naturalised Kiwi. Like I feel a great connection to our land and our culture and our people. Mm. You and I were supposed to meet in the States... And this is actually our first meeting back here because we both spent time over there with our families. I was there for my husband's work, but you were there for your work. But you had your husband and two girls in tow. How did you end up over there? Quite a journey, actually, quite an exciting journey. So I've been a producer in New Zealand for quite a few years doing feature films and series and non-fiction content. And one of my last gigs here was a series called Dark Tourist, where I met your husband, Joel, who did our amazing title sequence. I'm David Farrier, and this trip gets weirder than I ever imagined. You've seen the series, Duncan? 
Yes. Good, right? That title sequence. Title sequence is, is really the best thing about it. The rest I don't care for. <laughs> no, it's it's a great series. Yeah, so in case you haven't seen it, it's essentially... How, how would you say it? Basically, the series follows David Farrier as he goes around the world doing what's known as, as dark tourism. So Dark Tourist was New Zealand's first ever original commission for Netflix. Also at the same time, I was kind of delivering a couple of movies that had been made but purchased by Netflix, so Tickled and uh, The Breaker Rapperers. This tickling empire is way bigger than we ever imagined. They have tickle cells all over the US. They're everywhere. And it's I remember so clearly when Tickled and The Breaker Rapperers arrived on Netflix, you know, Tickled, this amazing documentary where Faria traveled to the US and, and uncovered this very bizarre and creepy sort of tickling fetish cult. Oh, hell broke loose. And The Breaker Upper is like a fantastic, you know, New Zealand comedy that felt like it contained a whole generation of New Zealand comedians. Sheree don't want to be with you no more. Sheree don't want to be with you no more. It's such a big deal for those creators to have made it onto that platform. It really changes your career, and we have Polly to thank for that. So I was quite familiar with Netflix and I really loved how it worked. Like it was such an amazing company to work with, like so innovative, very transparent, very candid, very quick moving. Like it was quite a different studio experience or even broadcaster experience to what I had before. And I was, I was really quite into it. So a few months after we delivered Dark Taurus, we went to Los Angeles for a film conference. And at the time, we went to Netflix to pitch a couple of other ideas. Mm. We bumped into a couple of the production and post executives that we had worked with on Dark Taurus. They shoulder tapped me and said, oh, have you, have you ever thought about working here? Oh, how about that? So anyway, conversations ensued. I sort of made an application. I just thought it was for a bit of a laugh, really. I just thought, oh, I'd just like to see if maybe I... If you've got the chops. Re- yeah, if I've got, yeah, if I've got the chops for this. And then before I know it, like we are sort of um, panel interviews and then that night in the hotel room they offered me wow. the job. Wow. Well, congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> a belated congratulations. That's pretty huge. Um, and was it a no-brainer at that point? Were you like, okay, well, we're off as a family, let's go? Or No, that was the start of the negotiation period. Right. Like, my husband is a physiotherapist mm-hmm. and is an incredible physiotherapist and operates at a high level here and has done a lot of, spent a lot of time in the UK. So he was up for living abroad because he yeah. spent a lot of time living abroad before, but, you know, we knew it was going to be definitely a compromise for him professionally. We didn't know whether he could get registered to treat people in California or what was possible, and, and we couldn't find that out very quickly, so that was all quite up in the air. Yeah. But we sort of thought, well, it's an opportunity. We felt like we'd regret it if we didn't. You only live once, right? That's true, yeah. Going to move that dog again. You are going to move These are the individual stories at the heart of what we call the brain drain, but what about the big picture? Is the brain drain even real? No, it is real. Paul again, the demographer from Massey University. I mean, when you look at the New Zealand diaspora, I think that's around a million. That's substantial. That's a lot. That's way higher than I thought it would be. We have the second largest diaspora in the OECD just behind Ireland. That's quite a mind-blowing fact, right, to think of that many New Zealanders, that larger chunk of our population that's sort of scattered to the four winds. We don't tend to think about them a lot, but we're going to have to start because a huge number of them are starting to come home, more than we've ever seen at any point in our history. I truly believe it's a lot of people who went off on their OE on one-way tickets and just couldn't afford to come back. When you look at the 
the skills mix of that diaspora, the skilled population is as likely to be overseas as it is in New Zealand. So the proportion of those million people who are high skilled is actually very, very high. Okay, so there goes my theory that it's just people on their OE pulling pints that couldn't afford to come home. Turns out there are lots of New Zealanders living overseas and a high proportion of them are actually really skilled. So their brains that have been drained from New Zealand. But the term brain drain feels kind of weird, actually, because not all of the people leaving the country are highly skilled, but it seems kind of nasty to be like, oh, well, you're not part of the brain drain. You know, you're just part of the drain. I think that the phrase brain drain is very self-conscious. It's it's almost resentful of those who left. I also think that while people who left might have gone with kind of that brutal designation, unskilled, all that says is your level of education or training when you left. It doesn't say what you did when you went there. So to be honest, I feel like all of the returning New Zealanders, irrespective of their education, bring with them something that when applied to New Zealand is going to change this country. And with normal migration, when someone comes in, you know a huge amount about them in terms of their education, their skill set, what they've been hired to do. Whereas because New Zealanders have an inalienable right to return, give or take a 14-day quarantine, they don't have to tell us anything about them. And as a result, the return migration, all, all of the, the new or the returning New Zealanders, we know almost nothing about. And that's a problem. So in the next episode, we're going to hear about what New Zealanders have found overseas, the skills, experiences, and the perspectives they've gained to try and get a better idea of who these people are. Coming Home was brought to you by The Spin-Off and Kiwi Bank. It was presented by me, Jane Yee. And me, Duncan Grieve. It was produced, edited and mixed by Claire Crofton. Thanks to RNZ for allowing us to use the archive news audio we've included in this episode. And shout out to Tina Tiller and Josie Adams for recording and helping us with interviews. And to Alice Webladall and Sherry Zhang. And to Lucy Raymer, of course, for booking out interviewees. She's an organisational genius. And of course, if you're liking this series, don't forget to subscribe to get the next one and tell all your friends. Kia ora e te iwi, te Aihe Butler here, podcast manager at The Spin-Off. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our mahi by signing up to become a Spin-Off member at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.